Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine, and a very warm welcome to the Film Stories podcast. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that have stories. And the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. Stories. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello, and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. As always, that's absolutely everything you need to know about me. But the podcast, well, as the title suggests, we're here to talk of the stories of film. So if you're here for the first time, welcome. If you're returning, welcome too. Uh, I talk about production stories, development stories, release stories, behind the scenes bits and bobs and all those things that go to make the films we know and sometimes love just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. Bit of a mixed bag of movies for this episode. I cover two films per episode usually. They're films that with the mainstream leaning that I tend to be invested or interested in to some degree. I do not do snark and I make no apology for that. There's lots of other places you can get snark if that's what you're hunting for. But if you're here to talk about the stories of films, well, settle down. I'm going to play you a clip from the first of the two films that I'm going to talk about in this episode and then we'll just crack on. Here's that clip. You're gonna want to see us, Oscorp. Yet you under surveillance. Why? Isn't that the question of the day? Nothing is what I thought it was. I once told you that secrets have a cost. The truth does too. My name is Richard Parker. I have discovered what Oscorp was going to use my research for. What is all this? The future. We have plans for you. Peter Parker. You wanted to be that then was a clip from 2014's The Amazing Spider-Man 2. I'm going back and doing a comic book movie. I don't do them very often. I think they're covered heavily elsewhere. But I think this is quite an interesting story. It's directed by Mark Webb, written by Alex Kurtzman, Roberto Orchi, and Def- Jeff Pinkner. It would be the last film, I think, that Kurtzman and Orchi would be credited on together. Story credited also to James Vanderbilt, based on the Steve Ditko and Stanley uh, comic book creation, of course. The cast for this one is a fairly extensive ensemble that is Andrew Garfield, Emma Stone, Jamie Foxx, Dane DeHaan, uh, Felicity Jones, Paul Giamatti, Sally Field, Embeth David, Campbell Scott in there, BJ Nova. A, a fair whack of people in this particular film. And it was a film with a lot riding on it. So the story for this one goes back to really 2011. So well, perhaps even further than that, because after Sam Raimi had made his trilogy of Spider-Man films, and I've covered Spider-Man 3 in an earlier film stories, Sony had a decision to make about the future of the character on the big screen. Does it spend an inordinate amount of money on Spider-Man 4 with Sam Raimi directing? It would have had John Malkovich as the vulture, if memory serves, with Tommy Maguire playing Spider-Man for the fourth time or do they reboot and start again and they they went for the reboot option so Mark Webb came in and directed 2012 The Amazing Spider-Man Andrew Garfield was cast as the web slinger and they gambled and they probably just about won out on that film now I didn't really like The Amazing Spider-Man I found it quite a safe film although I do appreciate quite a lot of people like it but it was clear from the off that that was never intended to be one film. So a, 
if what nearly a year before the amazing spider-man made it into cinemas sony already announced the amazing spider-man 2 they announced its summer 2014 release date and within the amazing spider-man they started seeding bits that would appear in the sequel that would prove to be a theme because as the amazing spider-man 2 started to come together sony was coming up with a bigger plan for what it what it wanted to do with the entire spider-man world that it's no secret that marvel was enjoying significant success with its burgeoning cinematic universe the uh, first of Avengers film had crossed a billion dollars at the global box office. Iron Man 3 had done uh, over a billion dollars as well. And all of a sudden, what had changed was the perception of just how high financially a comic book movie could go and that the shared universe model was the way forward. And Sony wanted a slice of that. It had Marvel characters, got the rights to this day to use Spider-Man on screen. And so when it came to putting the second film together, it started nurturing the plan of a broader Spider-Man cinematic universe and as it happened Sony would announce the release dates for Spider-Man, The Amazing Spider-Man 3 and The Amazing Spider-Man 4 before The Amazing Spider-Man 2 was even in cinemas and then even before its release as well plans became clear for a spin-off universe of films with The Sinister Six and Venom uh, which has finally been realised but completely separate from this were amongst those that Sony was said to be working on. Now, in terms of personnel for this one, well, the screenplay I, I've gone through, written by Kurt, uh, Alex Kurtzman, Roberto Orchi, Jeff Pinkner. But in terms of a director, well, Sony wanted Mark Webb back. And Mark Webb had landed the Amazing Spider-Man job off the back of his excellent film, 500 Days of Summer. And I spoke to him about that. And he said that was pretty much a film that he designed in his garage. Whereas uh, Spider-Man, when it came to doing a Spider-Man film, that was clearly a much, much bigger endeavour. And so he, I think a little bit of him was probably in awe of of the first Spider-Man movie but the fact is he wrestled it to the screen it came out in 2012 he wanted to return in 2014 for the new film the problem was with 500 Days of Summer he'd signed a two picture deal with 20th Century Fox and he was expected to go back to that deal and so some negotiation needed to take place and so two things happened for Fox to agree to uh, release really Webb to make the film firstly in certain cinema showings of The Amazing Spider-Man 2 when it came out there was a, a mid-end credit sequence which was a scene from X-Men Days of Future Past and here was that rarest of thing of a studio in a mid-credit sequence I don't think it's been done before or after promoting another studio's film but that was part of the price for securing Webb as director in terms of Webb himself his two-picture deal with Fox suddenly turned into a three-picture deal with Fox although in the aftermath of The Amazing Spider-Man 2 that's not really happening he has gone on to make a film called Gifted which I think is terrific and he's now doing Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs the live action one for Disney uh, which I guess owns Fox so it, it sort of all worked out in the end Casting wise, well, Andrew Garfield was clearly going to return as uh, as Peter Parker and Spider Man. Gwen Stacy was going to be played by Emma Stone, and the the cast that was set up primarily in the first film were coming back. But in terms of new additions, well, they needed a new villain for a star, and it was fairly early on settled that that new villain would be Electro. Electro was a character that, when James Cameron was originally considering making a Spider Man film, he was one of the ones along with Doctor Octopus who was on Cameron's wish list. In terms of the cast 
casting wish list though and they were putting the cast of this together at the end of 2012 so the amazing spider-man hadn't been in cinemas for a year when they were ramping up to do this film so jean de jardin uh was uh, on the wish list for electro mads mickelson damian lewis was in there but by october 2012 it was clear that jamie fox was the running favorite for the role and he was indeed confirmed early in december 2012 also confirmed around the same time was dane dehan who was going to be playing harry osborne in the film the felicity jones came aboard roughly around that time in an unconfirmed role paul giamatti who had given an interview in the past saying if he would like to play the rhino if he was ever cast in a spider-man film was cast to play the rhino although as it would turn out he would barely really be in the movie and he's not the only one there for also cast in the film was shailene woodley who was to play mary jane watson clearly a very significant character in the spider-man world and so she she went and shot only a handful of scenes for the amazing spider-man 2 but it would become clear uh, during production that her, in fact, it came out, the story came out, that she, uh, her character was being cut from the second film because the second film was already chock-a-block with a view of bringing Mary Jane into the equation for The Amazing Spider-Man 3. The plan with the film, though, was quite... Um, I mean, it was a pretty ambitious production really because what they wanted to do with the film was to shoot it in entirely New York State. And that's a bigger undertaking than it, 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 than you might think, really. Because, I mean, New York's a huge place, obviously, and home to lots and lots of film productions. But at that point, it had never entirely housed a $200 million-plus blockbuster movie because it's okay using the locations of New York, but in terms of the studio facilities to accommodate what they were trying to do with The Amazing Spider-Man 2, well, that was a whole, different, uh, a whole different level, really. And there were some quite significant things that had to be done to accommodate that so first of all there's a sequence uh that, i mean there's a prominent sequence that takes place in times square in new york where jamie fox's electro wreaks havoc and has a fight with spider-man as as is want to happen in such films and they only shot in the actual times square for that for three three days three days of of location shooting but the rest of it they rebuilt they built a times square set in the long island area but the problem they faced was that the again this hadn't been done there wasn't enough physical equipment in new york to build everything that they needed for that sequence and to house the amazing spider-man 2 and so they had to fly and equipment from Los Angeles and Canada especially so they could recreate all of this and put all of this together but also even when they did ultimately film the uh, on their Long Island on their Long Island set they began well they, they found out one day that internet snoopers were going to go a long way to try and get footage of this film to leak online ahead of time and they discovered this when and this was what 2013 so the technology is not quite as advanced as it was now but this was when a drone just landed crash landed in the middle of the set and they became aware that people were flying drones over the set to try and capture footage of the movie such was the the interest in this film this was a huge production New York hadn't seen anything of its ilk, but also the, this uh, uh, certainly in terms of housed in the entirety of New York. But also, this was a big Spider-Man sequel, and the hopes for this one were incredibly high. Now, when it came to actually shooting the film, Mark Webb, and I discussed this with him around the time of the release of the film, admitted he, he was much more confident with what he was dealing with, that 
on the first film he'd found he, he was a bit resistant to using digital work where things could be done physically in camera and he talked about how when he went to edit the first film he did most of it as you'd expect in an editing suite with a big screen in front of him but then just before the release of the film he got to see the movie on an IMAX screen and kind of realized that what worked in the edit suite didn't always entirely relate to what happened on the big screen and he, he regretted that he cut the first film back so much he realized he could have done just a little bit more with it and so he went into the second one appreciating that there were studio mandated things that needed to happen in the second film but with a bit more confidence himself in the digital tools available to him for making a spider-man film and thus there was an awful lot of pre-visualization work done on this one so that he could have the confidence in the digital work and they could kind of amp the scale of this movie up but it was still it was still quite taxing to keep lots of things under wraps so filming on this one began in February 2013 and it ended in June 2013 again it's worth noting this was all less than a year after The Amazing Spider-Man had debuted in cinemas and even though the wrap-up of filming was in June of 2013 and the release wasn't due until April of 2014 there was an awful lot they had to squeeze in to the post-production and, and also the marketing so in terms of the post-production, an awful lot of, uh, of effects work clearly, particularly with the character of Electro, who was a hugely demanding character to realise. And it's one of those arguments that technology had got to a point where he, it made it possible. But still, it was a challenge and a half to do it. But also there was the decision to do a post-production 3D conversion as well. And what they didn't want to do was madly rush that. So they needed to afford proper time to give it a proper 3D uh, a 3d makeover and again this was the era where everything was getting a 3d bolt on just so you could add a couple of quid onto the ticket price and a very successful ploy that was even though very few of us were a fan of it that for a period of three four years was making movie studios an awful lot of money the marketing campaign was by turns a bit confident and muddled, I'd suggest. So there was the reveal of that the Dane DeHaan's character of Harry Osborne would actually become Green Goblin in the movie but that that was released as part of the marketing campaign and it wasn't really something that the filmmakers wanted at but wanted there but it, it was going through the marketing process and they they just didn't stop it for whatever reason and fans soon became a little bit suspicious of just how many villains have been packed into this film because I think particularly those of us who grew up on, um, on the Batman films of the 90s um, packing an awful lot of villains in we, it became very clear was, was let's just say testing and this Spider-Man film as well as all of a sudden having to do the setup for a cinematic universe that Sony was hinting and, and saying was coming as well as having to do the setup for a couple of sequels it was having to bring in the characters of the rhino of green goblin of electro and, and put all of those arcs into one film as well as uh, the peter parker gwen stacy story and the film was becoming packed um and and not shortening at all i mean that's why the character of mary jane ended up on the cutting room floor because there was just no room and also they wanted to focus more on gwen stacy or that side of peter parker's life the 
also that as the promotion was coming together i mean sony really did go for it it's worth noting that so a year before um it did san diego comic con i think it was about eight nine months before did san diego comic con and debuted what three four minutes of footage from the film exclusively to comic con that worked out because that there's no way that would leak out online it leaked out online but also they they went for it with pretty much all the usual expensive spots you'd expect a big super bowl spot followed uh, early in 2014 the, the the release of the trailer was a huge event in itself but also there was then this talk of of, of seeding in easter eggs and of building what this spider-man universe would be behind the scenes there was also going on a struggle to not only keep the running time of the film under control and the film came in at 142 minutes um the, the at that point the longest spider-man film to date at that point and and still they'd had to chop an awful lot out to get to that point but also they'd actually struggled to get the pg-13 rating that that was crucial for a big screen spider-man movie and a lot of that was down to the transformation sequence for for harry osborne and the green goblin that dane dehan's role was cut down but also the the sharper edges of that transformation sequence were pulled back that they did test seat that they did test screenings and found that it was just frightening kids too much there were moments with the character of harry osborne where he's drinking they were pulled back there were moments of romance let's just say that harry osborne they were pulled back and and the role gradually just just contained and contained and contained and contained the pg-13 rating was ultimately secured and there was still an awful lot in the movie but from the outside looking in it, it it already looked like it was straining under the weight of absolutely everything that it had to do and then before the release it got even more convoluted that sony confirmed that it, it was looking to do a sinister six film that it, it was going to move up its schedule i think it got, it got, drew goddard was in to do that it's the reason drew goddard didn't direct the martian as i've covered in a previous episode of film stories was he wanted to make the sinister six movie he was signed up by sony to do so and the plan was once the amazing spider-man 2 was out it would be sinister six and the amazing spider-man 3 to follow in fact i did the press junket in a previous life for the amazing spider-man 2 i remember talking to the producer matt tolmach and avi arad and they were i asked them at that point were they considering even an annual cycle for these films and it wasn't something that they were ruling out they also said that seeding characters like spider slayers and black cat comic book characters within the film though avi arad said to me it's like everything you see that makes you think about the comics i think you should read so you should read into that and they were very conscious about what that they'd monitored arad admitted to me that they'd monitored the social reaction to the first film very closely they'd seen the backlash against the costume for instance and they'd reacted to that but also they knew that the fact if they put something small in the film that the fan base would pick up on it and discuss it and there would be word of mouth and more and more people would be talking about the movies and that's what they wanted there was a hint of a problem elsewhere though when it came to actually scoring the film because james horner was set to do the score for the amazing spider-man 2 as he'd done for the amazing spider-man 
Now, I'm a huge fan of the late, great James Horner. I think he's a terrific composer. But as the story goes, he looked at a cut of The Amazing Spider-Man 2 and decided he didn't like the film and he didn't want to score it. And so Hans Zimmer was scrambled in fairly late in the day to score the movie. Sony was pouring not just the, what, $200, $250 million it took to physically make the film into The Amazing Spider-Man 2. So pivotal to it was it uh, to its future blockbuster ambitions was it? it it spent not far off the same again on marketing and promotion of the film and so it was fired up as a huge event and it was guaranteed really a big opening weekend and that is just what it got when it finally released into cinemas in April of 2014 that it was a staggered release really because we got it in the UK before it arrived in America I remember that but when it arrived in America it, it landed with what 90 million plus opening weekend and it shot out of the shot out of the traps at speed and, and sony looked to have won its gamble but it didn't because the word of mouth on the amazing spider-man 2 wasn't kind and i remember sitting in the press screening of it and sitting next to a spider-man uh, fanatic and i'm not a spy i'm not a comic book devotee of spider-man I, i've always enjoyed spider-man as a character in the films but I, I was very aware that the person I was sat next to was, let's just say, hugely disappointed with what he was seeing on the screen. Now, I've always quite liked The Amazing Spider-Man 2. I, I don't think it's terrific, but I think it's a, I think it's an upgrade on the film before. I think there's some, you know, some really good stuff in it. But certainly the last 10, 15 minutes or so is so bogged down in stuff that it's seeding for future movies that I, I, it's almost like a, a huge klaxon is going off of, of exactly what what it's up to and you look at um i mean i don't talk marvel cinematic universe a lot on this podcast again i think it's covered very well elsewhere but you look at the slickness and the guile and the way that marvel was seeding things into its films and in contrast what sony was doing with this film we may as well have just wheeled a massive arrow over the screen an, an imax screen at that and and got someone out with a massive klaxon wearing huge clown shoes and said look at this look at this look at this it was so obvious what they were doing and the audience started to, I wouldn't even say they massively backlashed against the film, but there just wasn't the enthusiasm to keep the amazing Spider-Man 2 going at the box office. So let's just zero in on the American release just to see what happened. That it opened in America um, in, in on May the 2nd of 2014. So after it had been released in, what, about 10, 15 territories elsewhere in the world to a 91 million opening weekend. So far, so good. It knocked the other woman off the top of the uh, box but the second week the drop-off was 61% and it was knocked off the top of the chart by Neighbours, known as Bad Neighbours over in the UK. It's starring Seth Rogen. This this comedy opened to a surprisingly high $50 million and Spider-Man was out. Then Godzilla followed the week after that, opened to $90 million. Spider-Man was dropping and dropping and dropping. And then X-Men Days of Future Past opened the week after that. And the competition was fierce and the amazing Spider-Man 2 just simply didn't have the word of mouth to compete ironically the x-men days of future past and that was a franchise that had always to, to a degree underperformed at the box office compared to what you might think would go on to be the most successful x-men film at, at the box office and would mop up a lot of repeat comic book business all the while captain america the winter soldier was still hovering around the bottom of the charts as well and by the time the amazing spider-man 2 left u.s cinemas it made just over 200 million dollars but worldwide it 
really hadn't soared either and that was the killer that was the killer that the film just just got over half a billion dollars worldwide it came in with a worldwide gross of 708 million dollars and by most people's standards you'd sit there and think well that's a really good amount of money but then this film had just cost a fortune for Sony, Sony to make in the first place and also the, the expectation was it would outgross the film that came before it and that just didn't happen even with the the 3d takings it, it, it fell 50 million shy of the amazing spider-man and that left sony's plans in some degree of a, a, a tattered by this point it had been uh, mark webb was set to do the amazing spider-man 3 and had already said he wouldn't do the amazing spider-man 4 but then the amazing spider-man 4 had been pushed back because sinister 6 was coming in and then the venom film was also in development but Sony had a huge decision to make. Does it gamble on a franchise now that was in decline? or And pre does it press ahead with this spin-off universe? Or does it, you know, do, do, does it stop? Does it course correct? Does it approach Marvel as it ultimately did? But that's all a story for another time. And it, interestingly, it was only three or four months after The Amazing Spider-Man 2 came out that Andrew Garfield gave an infamous interview to The Daily Beast, a very candid one where he talked about the problems with the film and Garfield told the Daily Beast I think what happened was through the pre-production production and post-production when you have something that works as a whole and then you start removing portions of it because there was even more of it than was in the final cut and everything was related once you start removing things and saying no that doesn't work and the thread is broken it's hard to go with the flow of the story and he said quote certain people at the studio had problems with certain parts of it and ultimately the studio is the final say in those movies because they're the tent poles so you have to answer to those people and he was he was saying he was proud he'd worked on spider-man and he, he was pleased with his work but that this film basically had been broken by studio meddling and in fact uh, i'd forgotten about this but around the time, within weeks of the film coming out, never mind the Snyder cut, there was a petition for the director's cut of The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Uh, that, I mean, it didn't attract an awful lot of signatures, but there was a list of scenes that were very obviously had been deleted uh, from the movie, that this had, this had been cut down to hit a running time and still managed to go to over two hours, 20 minutes. Sony, of course, went for the course correct option. I mean, history is told that, that Sony and Marvel did a deal for sharing the spider-man character sony retained the rights to do the spin-off films uh, and has now successfully launched one of those venom starring tom hardy but utterly unrelated to the amazing spider-man 2 project but this was one of those instances i think where clearly a film was a business decision i don't think there's any shame in that i think lots of film really good films are business decisions but also this was one that was weighted down by being needing to be more than a film i do think it gets a slightly unfair press i think it's a better film than it's generally given credit for but nonetheless it's very clear that it, it's a about an hour and 40 or an hour and a half hour of 40 of a really good film about 20 minutes of bloat and then 20 minutes on top of that of doing some studio weightlifting and that bit i think could quite easily have gone which brings me to the halfway point of the latest episode of Film Stories. Uh, if you like this podcast, it helps enormously if you subscribe to it. It helps enormously if you leave an ideally positive review of it as well. I'm an independent publisher, so anything you can do to help spread the word or support it is gold dust to me. I don't have a huge company behind me. It's just me in a room with some wine. But it's, I mean, it's not bad wine. It's on offer in the spa, two for £12. They didn't tell me to say that. 
with that in mind though uh, I'm going to move on to the second of the two films I'm going to talk about I'm staying in roughly the same era actually uh, I'm coming back to Britain I'm going to play you a clip I'll pick up the story the other side of this no matter how many times you're told you never really get it when you're young but you learn it's weird how through all of that you can do this one thing that people think defines what you're about and I remember what I said I remember I said never with a guy who ain't got nothing to lose but I was wrong because the only person more dangerous than someone with nothing to lose is someone who stands to lose everything that then was a clip from 2016's Brotherhood, directed and written and starring Noel Clark, who also co-produced co it. Also in the cast of this one, uh, Arnold Oseng, uh, Red Madrell is in there, Shan uh, Shanika Warren-Markland in there, the brilliant Cornell John, scene-stealing in this one, Stormzy. It's a really strong ensemble cast. Ashley Thomas, I mean, a whole bunch of people. Lashana Lynch is back in there as well, some of whom had been in the previous movie, uh, movies in the series and some of them haven't because brotherhood was the closing part well as we know at the moment of the hood trilogy of films that had put noel clark firmly on the map as a british filmmaker that he came to most people's attention i'd suggest uh playing mickey in doctor who when that was revived in 2005 but he'd also written the film kiddlehood which came out in 2006 which he didn't uh he didn't direct that was directed by manhaj huda uh, who wasn't going to return for the second film but nonetheless Kiddlehood was a hit that it cost about 600,000 to make it made 1.5 million at the box office it was also at one point mentioned by uh, David Cameron which gave it extra prominence when he, he was a, a political relevance and so off the back of that there was talk straight away of doing some kind of follow-up and Clark was interested in pursuing the story of the character Sam Peel in the movie and so he put adulthood together it was only two years after kiddlehood that adulthood became a thing that he penned the script and this time the option was available to him to direct the film and he hadn't gone into it expecting to direct he didn't have at that point the ambition to be a movie director but he figured in the end this was his chance the opportunity was in front of him and he directed adulthood and it came out he came out in cinemas in the uk in june 2008 it was again a modestly costed production but it was a, a real breakout hit at the uk box office in the summer of 2008 that it, it when it opened it pushed down the incredible hulk indiana jones the kingdom of the crystal skull and films like that and so the pressure was the pressure. There was talk at that point of, well, are you going to do another film? But Clark had other ideas that he had other filmmaking ambitions that he wanted to realise. So in spite of the success of adulthood and in spite of the fact at that point films could be financed off his name, that he'd proven himself as a box office entity in the UK, he decided to do something different. And so there was a film he wanted to make, which I think is his underrated film, which is 4321. And so he did that and that, that broke a million at the UK box office as well. It wasn't as, as big a success, but it was clearly a, a, an ambitious film and, and a real step forward in lots of different ways. He also had a period where he had three films he'd written out in the same year. They were Storage 24, Fast Girls and The Knot. 
But in terms of directing, he kept resisting coming back to the story of Sam Peel. He kept resisting coming back for what would be Kiddlehood 3, effectively, and finishing the story off. And so he, his argument was always he didn't really know what story he wanted to tell at that point. He would just be reiterating what he'd said in the previous films, and that wasn't of interest to him. So in terms of where his directing career went, he decided then to put his energies into a film called The Anomaly, which I think he himself says he regrets doing. Uh, I don't think it's his best film. I think there's a couple of interesting bits in it, but it's the weakest of the movies that he's directed. And off the back of, say, the falling box office as well of The Anomaly and the change in cinema that was going on with the gradual move towards streaming and digital distribution taking off, the chances of films being funded off Clark's name purely were in decline. To be fair, there, there were few people, uh, and there remain few people, whose name you can fund a film off the back of. But still, he had this popular franchise that these two films that had both been surprise hits that even after the success of the first one people saw adulthood as a big surprise and so he'd finally got to a point where he felt he had another story in this series that he wanted to tell that nearly a decade had passed and he'd grown up he'd had kids uh he had stories he wanted to tell about uh, about settling down about trying to find a way through life really and so he took the idea to market to see who was interested in backing what would become Brotherhood. And for the third time out of three in this hit trilogy, he hit problems. Now, in the case of this one, it, the struggle was really just finding any distributor who was willing to stump up the money to make the film. That There was a feeling that it had been so long since the last film had been a success that the window of opportunity to make this into a big commercial success had passed. And also that combined with the fact that, that Clark the movie star wasn't quite where he was in terms of British box office appeal before. And so th this was no box office sure thing, again, in the eyes of the people who were making the decisions Clark still felt that there was an audience for this film he knew that people were grow had grown up with kiddlehood and, and adulthood and they were two films that meant something to to people and meant something to their audience and so eventually he did get a couple of offers from distributors but it was not really they weren't really offers that were worth shouting about and I did talk to him about this and I talked to him about what, why he was going to make the film. And his quote was that uh, for me it was interesting because I'd been told to make it and hadn't. And then I got two kids, felt I finally had something new I wanted to say. And then they went, it's not going to work. The audience has grown up now. And he said, I know because the characters have grown up. And he said, quote, we went to every distributor in this country and said, this is the film and this is the cost. And all came back with, well done, great script. We just don't think we can finance it at that level if you can just cut the budget in half now he, he wouldn't be drawn on the exact budget for uh, for brotherhood but not expensive i think would be pretty fair to say that he's always made economic films and he's always worked primarily within the independent sector that um he, he's he's generated films through his un unstoppable entertainment company and brotherhood in that regard w was no different to that and in the end there were only two companies who would put uh w believed enough in the project to 
even talk about financing it and he, he said that they came in with offers and both of the offers were low one of them in particular quote lowballed us and, and wouldn't go up but in the end it was clear that Lionsgate in the UK was the, 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 the likely home of the project that Lionsgate had put in a good bid for the film but it wasn't quite enough for Clark to make the movie as he wanted to make it and he went backwards and forwards with them and it came down to a simple sum a simple sum he says of £50,000 which in the context of a film production appreciating it's an independent film production not the most enormous amount of money when you're talking about a sequel to a film that had taken over three million pounds at the UK box office. It's a profitable film. I mean, factor in the DVD uh, sales as well. This was a profitable film, but still, the the, the toing and froing went on, and and Lionsgate agreed to stump up the extra money, and all of a sudden, uh, Brotherhood was back on. That Clark had his script, that the the cast was was coming together, and it was it was. It was going forward. So in the case of Brotherhood, he produced it with his regular producing partner, Jason Mazza, and their partners in Unstoppable Entertainment as well. And the cast, uh, primarily, lot, lots of returning faces. Uh, Stormzy was cast in there as well. And Clark Clark admitted he put an extensive making of uh, of Brotherhood on, on his YouTube channel, which is worth having a look at because they talk about casting Stormzy. And then just a couple of months after he was cast, his career really took off and that worked for their benefit also there's uh, a cornell john on there as well who who talks about how he's always asked to say that lines from the hood trilogy that he calls it his arnold schwarzenegger moment and he, he thoroughly blames with a grin on his face Noel clark for that Clark did want to shoot it in and around the area where he grew up. He was always keen to make films that reflected the area where he grew up, that talked to talked to him really, and and talked to him as he was growing up. That he felt as, as when he was young, there weren't films that that talked directly to him as much of a fan as he was of the American audience uh, of American comedies. Uh, the, the the British films that were coming out, well, they were reflecting a part of London that wasn't his London and he's always been quite candid about that that when he went to watch Notting Hill that was five minutes from his front door but it could have been like 500 miles such was the difference in the world that was put across on the screen so when it came to doing Brotherhood I mean they're filming at the local Westfield shopping centre for instance that wasn't apparently up and running when they made the first movie but they wanted it to be in and around the the London area now Jason Mazza talks quite interestingly about sourcing locations as well for the film so on that aforementioned behind the scenes documentary so filming let, let's just put it into context filming began in brotherhood in west london in november 2015 and at that point it was already being called the final part of the trilogy the cast uh, the, the majority of the cast was in place and clark uh, to his credit I, I, he's a divisive character and he knows he's a divisive character and he knows he puts up uh, a front where as a consequence quite a lot of people dislike him and he he, he has no problem with that whatsoever and it's quite interesting looking uh talking to people who've worked with him quite closely that uh, as many are as enamored with him um as not but one of the things he's done through his company which i always hugely admire is he offers opportunity so unstoppable is one of the few com companies that i know of you can send an unsolicited screenplay for and when it came to putting the music for brotherhood together and they were they were going to use a lot more score in this film but they also wanted to make sure that there was music constantly throughout they did put a call out on social media inviting people to send in their tracks uh, they got hundreds of emails coming in during the pre-production -pre of the movie and some of those tracks sourced by social media made it into 
the film and some people got a break as a consequence of the movie. Now, it was a low-budget film. For all the toing and froing with lines go over the budget, this was a low-budget film. And most of it was set where they, they had a unit base and they tried to get locations that were no more than 10, 15 minutes away from that unit because they needed to cut down on the transportation costs as much as anything else. They were getting the right, getting permission to use certain locations, but they only had them for a small amount of time. So when they did go out and they were shooting a lot of uh, night, they needed to do the setups quickly. They needed to do numerous setups. They needed to get in and out and get everything done. So they couldn't afford an awful lot of transportation time as a consequence of that. That said, for a big crucial sequence in the film that I'm not going to spoil, which was a, a shot pretty near the, the, the end of the film's production, there was a problem in securing a suitable location for it. They needed a, a pretty open space. And Jason Mazza talks about the fact that they didn't lock a, lo a key location down for the movie until one day before. And he talks about this rule about you, you can't go more than 15 minutes away, really. And they had to break the rule to secure a location. And it was a, a pretty extensive uh, series of shots they needed to do. They had a crane on set. They, they were really going for some quite complicated bits and bobs in there. And this location came together very, very, very late in the day. And he, he just says to, to Cameron, this thing, it's no way to make a film. I wouldn't recommend it. But there was an element of seat of the pants of, of how they were putting it all together. That said, there was no shortage of ambition to that shoot. That There's a club scene in the in the film where they brought in 250 extras to do that scene. And and that, that's hardly doing, doing things by halves. And one of the things they always said was that they're going to try and stretch the budget and make their films look an awful lot more expensive than they actually are that's reflected too in the fact that there is an awful lot of location work in the brotherhood movie now the film would ultimately come in on schedule and on budget but there was still doubt in spite of that uh, as to just how well this film was going to do and I think this is quite I, I was fascinated by this that it was given a release date the 29th of August 2016 so that's quite an off-peak release date really um, but the Lionsgate was arguing that with the, the rise of things like YouTube Facebook social of streaming even at that point streaming was starting to eat in that they would be happy if the film grossed a million and a half at the UK box office. And that's less than half what adulthood did. But the level of expectation of what this film was going to do was, was really quite low. And, you know, it's one of those things. The first film was underestimated. The second film was underestimated. And what do you know? The third film was underestimated as well. And I asked Noel Clark at what point he knew that the audience was still there, because there must have been an element of doubt for the filmmakers as well. And he talked about something he did I think it was the 3rd of March 2016 I've traced it back to and this was what six months six, just shy of six months before the film came out and he dropped on his Facebook page the first preview trailer for the movie this wasn't officially released by Lionsgate this wasn't put out by a PR agency he just sat there and he he dropped it onto his page and then he hit refresh and then the hits were coming in fast 
And then he he's with Jason Mazza at the time. And they're just like, well, what's the expectation of what this should be doing? And it became very clear that the hits were, were racking up at a rate far in excess than would have been expected. And that initial trailer got 3.8 million views for a British independent movie that was expected to do one and a half million pounds at the box office. And Clark said he knew at that point he had something and he knew that the audience was there and he felt that this was going to work. Lionsgate were clearly buoyed by this. I I, I remember working with them around the time and they, they put in a job and a half pushing the film and promoting the film and putting on screenings, putting on Q&A screenings. And Clark very much went out and did an awful lot of promotional work for the movie and it would work it would work that whilst the reviews for the film were quite mixed there was a, a, a feel, I, I, I quite like the film there was a feeling though that it, it kind of it, it, it did fairly obvious things that you would expect I think it was Empire that said that I thought it was quite uh, I, I thought it was a really good review that it, it it followed some of what you would expect for the closing part of a trilogy but i think there's an awful lot of really good stuff in brotherhood and crucial an awful lot of really good stuff that you don't necessarily that we weren't seeing in cinema at the time even then even in the aftermath of kidhood and adulthood the film would be a huge box office success by uh, by comparison to what you would expect of a, a british independent movie and so it came out um it, it came out at the end of that august and the only thing that kept it off the top of the chart was the animated movie sausage party which had had huge previews uh in the build-up to it but brotherhood would open at number two at the uk box office with a one just shy of two million pounds was its opening so straight away that's half a million in excess of what the studio was predicting but also it was on its way to eclipsing the box office of adulthood it, it came in in the end i think it was just shy of four million pounds which was a huge success uh, and greatly in excess of what had been expected at one and a half million Lionsgate would have been happy and it would have been a success nearly four million pretty much champagnes all round now Clark in the aftermath of it he was insistent this is uh, at the moment the closing part of the trilogy that again he didn't have another story at that point that he wanted to tell of the character of Sam and how how things evolved beyond there and so for the time being at least he he's he's ruled out the hood four or whatever that would go on to be i think there's been one or two fake imdb listings i think parenthood was one of them but there's a very good film called parenthood already in existence but nonetheless i I, again i asked him about that and he's just like no no that that's not real but what is real is he's tried to take the whole project to tv and in the autumn of 2017 he wrote a pilot episode for a kiddlehood tv series and took that out to took that out to market to see who would be interested in making it and once again it was the same response that even after three surprise hits he's not found someone at this stage who is willing to put their money behind a television spin-off of the kiddlehood films and again i asked him about this and he just rolled his eyes as if it's just like i've come to expect it by this point but this has become a franchise but the most successful trilogy of british independent films in that i can remember and it's become something thing it's clearly become something that means something to a lot of people that talks to a lot of people as well and it's also different and it's also good and i think the story of kidhood adulthood and brotherhood warts and all and clark admits that you know that there are bumps in the franchise there are things that he would do differently there's things that he liked the things they don't it's a really extraordinary success story and one far more worth celebrating than, than tends to be celebrated
And what do you know? I've come to the end of another episode of Film Stories. So you can find me on Twitter at Simon Brew. You can find the entire Film Stories project at Film Stories Pod. The new issue of Film Stories magazine is shipping this week. We've got it's issue 11. You can order copies at www.filmstories.co.uk. In the new issue, we've got all the, we go behind the scenes of the last Christmas movie. We taught I, I dug into the many, many unmade films based around the 2000 AD comic. We salute the cinema of david essex and crikey that was a rabbit hole to go down uh where movie stars do panto all sorts of stuff that we've crammed in 100 pages of film mayhem www.filmstories.co.uk we're on facebook at facebook.com slash film stories online you can find a whole host of exclusive video film stories as well at youtube.com slash film stories but that's it for me for this episode i'm off to go and watch another load of films to put another episode of film stories together for now thank you so much for your support thank you for listening and take care bye bye Thank you.